Well, the Spirit confirms it inside of us. He says that that Spirit says we can cry out, Abba, Father. But we also see it in the Word of God. That is His revelation to us. If we want to know the heart of our Savior, if we want to know the mission of God, if we want to know who we are, we find it in the Word of God. And today and for the next five weeks, I want to walk through a journey studying the Word of God as it is written, line by line, verse by verse, through one single book, the book of Titus. And um, I want to challenge you to think of yourselves today as seminary students. We're not going to do a, a little surfing, you know, we're not going to just skip over the top of the Word of God. We're going to go deep. And I want us it to change us. I want it to get inside of us. So how many of you uh, brought a notebook or any pencil or paper or anything? You guys are good boys and girls. Good. You get stars. Now, I want you to look under your seat and see if there's a little bright pink piece of uh, cardstock there. Does anybody have one? Hold that up if it's there. I want you to come on up if you found a piece of pink cardstock. Now, if for some reason there's one in a seat that's not occupied, grab it. It's yours. And then I want you to come join me up here. I want to give you something. stated that the Bible is our foundation, it's the divine, I know you can hear me without it, but anyway, it is God's voice to us, it's how we know who we are, it's how we know who God is, it's how we know what we're to do and how we're to live, but most importantly, the word changes us, it transforms us, and so I'd like to spend a little bit of time because sadly, we don't have a biblical foundation like generations past. Most research shows that millennials and Gen Zs and below don't know the Word of God. They don't have a biblical history. It's not woven into our culture anymore. And so people come into the churches without understanding the story, without understanding the foundation of our faith. And as a result, things can go very much awry. We've learned some of this from our disaffiliation journey. Many people may say the reason that we are disaffiliating from the church has to do with marriage issues or other things. No. It has to do with a walking away from the core truths of the Bible. The Bible has been marginalized. You know, in the, in the uh, Wesleyan tradition, we often talk about the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Sounds very technical. Sounds very geometric. It's about the word, experience, 
tradition and reason. Now, John Wesley never intended it to be for equal parts. Scripture was always supreme, and reason, experience, and tradition had to align itself under the unwavering, infallible, perfect God-breathed word. But that got tipped on its head over the last decades, and the Bible has fallen in its authority. I took a class in Methodist policy and doctrine, and we were reading about the Bible and what its official role in the church is. And according to the United Methodist documents, it's one of the authorities. It's never viewed as necessarily even inspired. They don't use that word. They don't use that it's infallible. It's an authority. But that's not what our traditions actually say. John Wesley said that he was a man of... Wait, wait, wait. Let's go back. Let's go back. We're we're a slide before this one. If we could go back. Yes, thank you. Perfect. I have heard this statement said by some brothers and sisters in Christ who think we, quote-unquote, evangelicals are too focused on the Bible. And they say that we worship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. And they say that with a snicker. It's a bit derisive. I remember going in for an interview with some people that were going to choose whether I could be a candidate for ordination, and I had to write an essay about what was important to me. And I talked about how the Word of God was going to be my rock and my foundation, no matter what the culture told me. And I was, of all the things I wrote, I got pointed at, well, you have to understand the culture of the time. You can't really trust everything that the Bible said. You don't want to be dogmatic. You're not a fundamentalist, are you? And it really gave me pause that my faith in the unshakable word of God was the thing that they were worried about. That's a big problem. I've had people say, well, you know, God let his kids write the Bible, so you really can't trust how they, what they came out with. All right? Yes, the Bible was written by men, men inspired, men carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's nothing wrong or false in the Bible. And if we study it well, and we study it honestly, and we study it with real integrity, we're going to find the truth pouring out of it. And we won't have questions or concerns, and we certainly won't dismiss it. John Wesley said, I am a creature of a day, and I am a spirit come from God, and I'm returning to God. And I want to know just one thing, the way to heaven God himself has condescended to teach me the way. He has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God and let me be a man of one book. I have been so blessed to be going to Asbury Theological Seminary because it is a seminary grounded on the word of God. I had many of you worried about me going to seminary. What's going to happen to Jeff? And you know what? That is a legitimate concern because a lot of bad things happen to a lot of people when they go to seminary. And a lot of people abandon their faith when they go to seminary. And some people call it cemetery. But I have been blessed to go to a seminary whose motto is the whole world, the whole Bible for the whole world. It's the next slide. Yes, the whole Bible for the whole world. And that's what we want to do. The Bible is for us. But the Bible is for the world because it's where freedom is found. It's where truth is found. It's where life is found. We don't hide it. We don't dismiss it. We don't marginalize it because we need to know our story. 
And we find our story in the pages from Genesis to Revelation of God's good creation, of what happened to mankind, why we have the problems in the world. We won't understand why the world is so messed up unless we know what the Bible says about it. We know that God's plan was to redeem all of creation, and so he chose a people through Abraham. And he chose a tradition through prophets. And then in the appointed time, his own very son came to this earth to bear our sin, to redeem us to the Father. And then he sent his Holy Spirit. And the church now is tasked with carrying on that story. But we have to know that story. How many of us don't know the story? Many of us are interested in finding our lineage. We go on 23andMe or Ancestry.com and we find out that we're related to whoever, back in wherever, doing whatever. That's not your story. Your story is that you are grafted in to the story of God through the blood of Jesus and that you have a new identity. You have a chapter in the Bible with your name on it, and it fits into that story. We're not trying to fit God into our story. We're trying to find our place in his beautiful story because otherwise we don't know who he is. We don't know who we are. We don't know where we came from. We don't know what we're called to do. We don't know who we're called to be. So we need to dig into this beautiful, rich story because it is the air we breathe. It is the bread of life. Why are we studying a whole book? Well, isn't there a lot of picking and choosing that goes on with the Bible? It's almost like a lot of believers are just like opening up a jewelry box and see what earrings match their outfits. We don't look for Bible verses to match our life experience or our feelings or our flesh. We're going to change our outfit, not try to match the Bible to fit it. We don't pick and choose. We don't become the arbiter of what the Bible's relevance is. Well, this part relevant, this part's not. This part is applicable, this part's not. It's all life. And we want to drink deeply from the life that's offered to us so we don't pick and choose because what happens when we pick and choose? There are, I watch a lot of sermons online, sometimes on television, and I will tell you there's some great teaching out there, foundational, truthful teaching, hard teaching. There's also a lot of Franken-sermons out there. Do you understand what I mean by a Franken-sermon? We're going to pull this verse and pull that verse and stitch it together in some ungodly, poorly fit-together mishmash of competing ideas to put forth an agenda, and we end up with a monster. What we also find, even in people who are trying to seek the Lord, we find an imbalance. We might be really strong on this theology. We may, be, we may be right about life and about marriage, but we don't have gluttony right. We don't have love right. We don't have greed right. And we don't have, uh, we don't have denying the flesh right. We don't have pride right. Because those are difficult passages to read. I want to read these things that make me feel good, and the rest of it I probably don't need it anyway, and I'm doing fine. No, because what happens, if you look at picture number two, we have an unbalanced theology. We got a great big bicep on the left, and we got a little skinny olive oil arm on the right. Have you ever seen a bodybuilder that's like all pumped up here and got these little skinny legs? Our Christian walk needs to be on a foundation of strength from top to bottom, whether we like everything it says or whether we understand it all or not, we need to go there. 
There was a time when people knew what the Word says, and there was an assumption that when they went home, they had a Bible study. And they went to Sunday school classes, and they were, they were feeding on the Word. That's not true anymore. So when people come in and a pastor throws a bunch of verses at them that tells them, live your best life, then the Bible just becomes a toolbox of self-improvement. I need the Bible to fix my marriage. I need the Bible to get rid of anxiety. I need the Bible so that my finances are good or my job is good. No, we need the Bible so that we can please the Lord, serve Him, and bear fruit and be changed. We have to be changed. If we've been walking with the Lord for 10 or 20 years or even 10 or 20 minutes, something inside us has to change. We have to be transformed because otherwise we're walking monsters, we've got lopsided theology, and worst of all, we're deceived. The Bible is our greatest treasure. It says that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. There are some tough words there. Nowhere does it say God breathed scriptures to make you feel happy and comfortable and, at, and self-satisfied. The Bible challenges us. Why? Because it's equipping us to do something with that word. We don't just put it up here. It goes into our heart, and then it goes onto our feet, and then we go out because we're called and we're sent to go out, but we have to go out changed into the image that the Bible tells us that we are. We have to know who we are. And many of us do not know who we are. I spent many years confessing Christ, and I did not know who I was. You are what you eat. I'm reading a book right now called Eat This Book. It's a very odd title. But hey, we just read it's our daily bread, right? We know that in Ezekiel, God says, Son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you to fill your stomach with it. In Revelation, John says, I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it. And it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I'd eaten it, it turned my stomach sour. The Bible is not always meant to taste sweet. Sometimes we get a little sick when we look at it. Sometimes we're a little uncomfortable. Sometimes we get a little bit of spiritual indigestion. And that's because it's telling us that we're missing the mark, that we have to change. But what's so beautiful about it, just like the song that we heard during the offering, is that we don't have to be afraid when we're convicted, when we're challenged, when we're said we're going off course. God is saying, but I'm right here. I can restore you. I can sanctify you. You, you can get right back on track. God reveals what he wants to heal. But if we never go there, if we look away, if we avoid it, if we turn the page, then that's a part of our life that will not change. We want to be transformed. I was reading a story the other day, a story that was written by C.S. Lewis. I think it's part of his Narnia trilogy. And it talks about this dragon, this dragon that was ugly and full of scales and dirty and smelly, and everyone was afraid of him, and he hated himself. And suddenly he encountered a lion. That lion was Aslan. Aslan represents Jesus. And he says, come to me to the pool. So they walk to the pool, and he says, I want you to get undressed. And so the dragon began to try to peel off his scales and rip off the leathery hide, the stinking feeded hide, the ugly smoke-smelling hide. But he found that every time he rubbed himself, there was another dragon underneath. And he rubbed himself again, and he bathed. He tried to get all of it off, and there were still other dragons, like layers of onions, just a dragon after a dragon. And finally, Aslan came up with a huge claw. 
And he dug that claw all the way down to the core of his heart. And he ripped through that flesh. And it hurt. But suddenly, a boy emerged. Suddenly, a human being who he was always meant to be came out. We are like pieces of marble that the Lord is chipping away at to bring forth the image that he created us to be. We were created in God's image. And that's the image he wants to conform in us. That's the image we can be. But we cannot be that through self-improvement. And we can't be that by directing the change. Only God can take that claw and rip it down between bone and marrow and take off the ugliness that is around us. And it's a lifelong journey because that dragon could try to get on you again. We have to allow him to do the work. And it's done by being transformed by the word, the washing of the water of the word. This is a prayerful journey. We're not reading Huckleberry Finn, Crime and Punishment. We're not reading Harry Potter. This is a holy book. The Holy Spirit inhabits this book. And so when we enter into it, we enter into it in prayer, which means we're talking to our Father. We're asking him to speak to us. We're engaging him. We're hearing his voice. His his life is in there calling us to life. And I want us to go in there with Jesus and with an expectation to be astonished. I have a professor. I love him. He's a great professor. I've taken four classes with him. And he always says, I pray that you are astonished by the word of God. We go into the book expecting to hear the things we've already read. Oh, yeah, I know that. I've heard that story. Yada, yada, yada. And yet there's a moment when we encounter the risen Christ, when the Holy Spirit comes alive in that word, and we are astonished. And we stop for a moment. And just like uh, Thomas, who doubted, and Jesus showed up in front of him, and he put his hand into his side, and he just said, my Lord and my God, There are moments when we put our hand into the side of Jesus and we feel his beating heart, the risen Lord, through his word. And all we can do is drop to our knees and say, my Lord and my God. There are times when I prepare for my Bible study on Sunday mornings and I just have to stop and just weep at his goodness, at his promises, at what he says about us which is so contrary to what the world says about us, what the enemy says about us, what our neighbors say about us, and what we say about ourselves. God wants to reach into your heart, show you who you are, change you, and amaze you, astonish you. We need to make this a priority, and so I want to do that in the weeks to come because we want to be new people. So I'd like to just pray as we enter this study that we will be astonished that the living word of God will come and meet us, that the Holy Spirit will transform us. So, Father God, I just ask you in this moment to be present with us, to inhabit every heart, to speak to every mind. Father, I ask you to change us through your word. I ask you to show us your rich miracles, the depths of your love, so that we can be the people you created us to be. Rip off the dragon shell and pull out the creation that you want us to be, and help us to walk as trophies of your grace. And we just commit this time to you. Guide us, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So I'd like to just introduce the book a bit. We need some context, right? So the book of Titus. I know that a lot of people ask me, Titus, who is that? Who wrote, is that Old Testament? Who? I mean, I, hey, I'm not judging 
there are parts of the word we're not familiar with. So let's get familiar with it. And we're going to learn about Titus today. Well, first of all, it was written in 66 or 67 A.D., and it was written by Paul. And it was written in the last months of his life, the last year of his life, just before he was imprisoned for the last time and just before he went to his death. It was probably one of the last three letters that was written by Paul, along with two others, First and Second Timothy, and then we have Titus. And it's a pastoral letter. It's a letter of a man whose eyes are dimming, who sees that it's time His time on earth is ending, and he wants to pour himself out into those that he is going to pass the gospel message on to. He's equipping the next generation. Timothy and Titus are going to be tasked with carrying on the apostolic tradition, carrying on the gospel, furthering the course of the church, and he wants wants to lay it down. These are his last words, and people's last words are important. We see in uh, 2 Timothy, which was written probably just months after this, and Paul says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. His time is done, but he's holding a baton that he needs to pass on to someone else. And he wants that person to also fight the good fight. He wants them to run the race, not sit on the sidelines. And he wants them to keep the faith, the true faith, the one faith given for all. That was his message here. And as he gives this message to Titus, he's giving it to us. That baton is being passed generation to generation. The gospel came to them on the way to you, on the way to somebody else. It's our responsibility to grab that baton and run the race, and we need to know what that means. And we know that through the word. So who was Titus? We know that he was a church leader. He was a a trusted companion of Paul. We know that he was a Gentile. He was the test case for Gentiles. Didn't have to get circumcised, didn't have to become a Jew, but boy, he was used powerfully. That's a message we can hear. Most of us are Gentiles. He accompanied Paul and Barnabas from Antioch down to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council. That's where they had to weigh this whole question of where do Gentiles fit in the church? And he was right there, full of the Holy Spirit, fully transformed. They pointed to him when they say, Does not God not show favorites? His Holy Spirit is present there. We don't need to make people Jews. And he was a living example of that transformation. We know that he served the church in Corinth. He was in Philippi with Paul. And he traveled to Crete with Paul. And that's the context in which we're talking today. The situation on Crete. So we'll unpack that a little bit more later. We know that he was, he was called by Paul to go to Western Greece. And we know that he was with Paul during his final imprisonment. He was there with Paul during his last days, soaking up the last that he could get out of his mentor and his spiritual father. And from Rome, he was sent to evangelize in Dalmatia. So what's the purpose of the book of Titus? Well, we've got problems in Crete. Now, you'll notice on the map, I don't know how well you can see it, that little red highlighted area is Crete. It's a large island among the Greek islands, and they were having some big-time problems. Self-serving leaders, a lot of false teaching, a lot of immoral behavior. It was a bad witness. They had churches everywhere, everywhere compromised by poor teaching and poor witness. And so Paul was basically sending Titus there to clean things up. I read one commentary that they say that he was Paul's hitman. 
Paul's spiritual Navy SEAL. Now, I've known people that think they have the rebuking gift, okay? The correcting gift. Well, if you look at the gifts listed in 1 Corinthians, we don't find, and some are given, the, 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 the gift of rebuke. If you think you have the gift of rebuke, if you're itching to rebuke and correct, probably you're not the one to do it. I think Titus was a man who was able to speak to people with integrity, stay true to the word of God, but also to build consensus in the spirit of love. And so this is what Titus was called to do. And guess what? This is what we're called to do. Every word in this book is a word for us. I want you to think of yourselves as a little Titus or a little Titalitus or whatever the female version of that would be. Now, the two main themes of this book are, number one, sound doctrine, and number two, to be zealous for good works. This is the imbalance we have. We have a lot of people with a big old doctrine bicep. They know the word. They know it right, and they don't do a thing about it. They do not enact what the word tells them to do, and they sit in their homes with arrogance and pride. And so we have to keep both things in mind. Yes, sound teaching is essential, but why are we taught? It says so that we can do the work of the ministry, so that we can do the good works that God has chosen for us to do. Not only do we put our thinking caps on, but we put our shoes on, and we run the race. And that race is to go. That race is to engage the world as a witness, as a good witness. And we can only be a good witness when we know the truth and we live it. So, let's start the book of Titus. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised from the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. Now, I was asked the other day, Jeff, am I hearing correctly that we're going to spend five weeks in a book that's only three pages? <laughs> and I, can, I get that because most of us would just read through those first four verses and go, yeah, 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 Paul to Titus, grace and peace. Now let's get to the meat. no. Paul is going to explode. He's exploding his greeting with so many truths about himself, about Titus, and about us. And we need to go deep. If we want to, we can skip along the shore. We can get our toes wet with the Word of God. That's fine. But if we want to be changed by it, immersed in it, we got to go deep. We've got to go to the beauty and the riches and the vastness of what is the Word. And so guess what? We're only going to cover four little tiny verses today. And I hope that's okay. Now, Paul's intro. If we look at first century letter writing, he is following the same format that all letters had. We give the sender's name. This is Paul. We give the sender's identity. I'm so-and-so. I'm, you know, this is kind of like when you leave a phone message. Hi, this is Jeff from Abiding Harvest. I'm the associate pastor. I'm calling John. Bless you. That's kind of what it is. You give your name, you say who you are, then you go to your recipient's name, and you bless them. But Paul, this is one of the longest introductions in all of ancient world. 
They have found many, many letters, and none of them have this lengthy introduction. And it's also one of the longest introductions that he ever wrote. So why did he do it if we weren't supposed to dig into it? He's giving us some deep theological truths that we want to jump into. And the first one is he is telling us who he is. He is giving us his identity. This is Paul. Let me tell you who Paul is. He knew who he was, and he wants us to know who we are. So what does he say about himself? Well, he could have talked about his human pedigree. As we read in other scriptures, he says, hey, if someone thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. He could have written a little puffed up uh, self-intro. It's very interesting, though, if you look at what follows this, he says, but whatever gains I have, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. This is my pedigree. It doesn't mean anything. And by the time he's writing the book of Titus, he's not talking about that anymore. He's talking about his identity in Christ because everything else is filthy rags. When we speak of our identity, we also don't speak of our broken past, of our sin, or of our failures. They're part of our story. They're in our biography, but they're not who we are. Paul says in another place in the book, several places, he said, Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. He persecuted the church. He had people dragged away to prison. He had people killed. He looked at the first martyr, Stephen, and he approved. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about his pedigree, and he's not talking about his failures. He's talking about one thing that's important to him, and that's who he is. So who does he say he is, and who does he say we are? First of all, he says, I'm a servant of God. That word servant just means a bond slave, which means a voluntary servant. I signed up for this. There's a humility in him, and that's a humility we need to already have, that we're only a slave of God. When we wake up in the morning, the best prayer to pray is to get on your knees and say, Lord, Jeff here, Cole here, Kay here, Erlene here, reporting for duty. What are my marching orders today? And then we do them. You know, there was a song written some years ago by Bob Dylan called, You Gotta Serve Somebody. We don't have the option other than to be servants. When God rescued the Hebrews, the Israelites from Egypt, he took them from one bondage, from slavery under the Egyptians, but he brought them out into the desert and said, now you will serve me. This is my covenant with you. This is what you are to do to be my people. These are my expectations. We are going to serve somebody. We can serve the enemy. We can serve our flesh. We can serve our agendas, or we can serve Jesus. As is very famous in the Bible, choose this day who you will serve. We will serve somebody. Let's serve God. Let's serve Jesus. Let us take our orders from him because he's good and he will only lead us to those things. So the first thing we want to talk about here is that Paul is a servant, Titus is a servant, and we are servants of the living God. Second, he says... Not only am I a servant, but I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, there's different ways to look at the word apostle in the New Testament. It was an actual office of the church. Generally, those people were church planters. They were sent to establish churches. Paul was an apostle. 
in that sense, but it was also a general principle for everybody. It just means a person who is sent. And you, my friends, have been sent. Jesus' last words before his ascension is go. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, Matthew 28. So you are an apostle because you are sent. But there's more. He says, I have been sent as an apostle to further the faith of God's elect. What is Paul talking about? He's speaking of two things. Number one, there's human responsibility. We come to faith. We have a choice. God does not compel us to serve him. He didn't make you a robot. He's allowed you to choose him or not to choose him. And as a result, we are called to be evangelists, to share the good news of Christ so that people can make that choice. There is human responsibility, and for that reason, we're called to evangelize. We're called to proclaim the truth because that is the means by which salvation comes. But he also says something else. You're chosen. You're elect. Before you were born, God saw you and he voted yes. You won that election. And the enemy may come in with a lot of counterfeit ballots and say that you lost, but you didn't. Nothing can take you out of God's hand. He wrote your name in the book of life, and you are safe and secure and chosen. So we have this duality. You have a responsibility through your free will to have faith, to choose faith. You have a responsibility to proclaim the truth so others may come to faith. But don't worry, I already chose you. Your name's already in the book, and guess what? No one can take you out of my hands. You are mine. We're also called to be transformed. It says, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Faith leads to a life of godliness. Any profession of the truth which allows an individual to live in ungodliness is a blasphemy. It is a spurious profession. We come to Christ as we are and we leave becoming from grace to grace like he is. We don't get our ticket to heaven, our fire insurance, praise the Lord, and live like the world. And yet that's what is happening because we don't know who we are. And when we know who we are, we are changed. We're changed to live a sanctified life, a holy life, a pure life, a godly life. We're called to grow up. We're not little children anymore. You know, I hear so many people when they say when they go to church, well, I'm just not fed there. Babies are fed. Feed yourself and then feed others. We need to grow up. We're not little babies sitting in a crib expecting everything to be done for us. All the praise and worship was great, but it just didn't. Stop it. I, I'm not saying you guys, okay? But I'm tired of people coming with this me, 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 consumer mentality, shopping around for where they can feel comfortable, cared for. Sure, we want you to be cared for. We want you to be loved. We want the word here. We want there to be plenty of meat to eat. But it's our responsibility to walk with God and our brothers and sisters to feed ourselves and most importantly to grow up to the maturity where we begin to feed others. So we are servants, we are sent, we are chosen, we are transformed. We are to become little Christs. 
The word Christian means a little Jesus. When people see you, when people see me, they, I want them to see Jesus. I want him pouring out of you like light in the world. If we look like him, then we're going to have the same mission that he does. We're going to have the same message that he did. We're going to do the same works that he did. And we're going to represent the same kingdom. We are kingdom people. We are not culture people. We're not political people. We're not self-seeking people creating our own kingdom. We have one kingdom, the kingdom of God, that we take territory for step by step. It says, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised from the beginning of time. We are hopeful people. It says, hope is a confident certainty, an expectation of something that is not ours, but it will be. It's not, a, oh, I hope this happens. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope I win the lottery. I hope so-and-so comes to church today. That's, that's just wishful thinking. Hope is a blessed assurance. God does not lie. When God said that Jesus was come, Jesus came. When Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come, the Holy Spirit came. And when Jesus said he's coming again, he's coming again. And when he said, I prepare a place for you, there's a place for you. Eternal life is not just quantity of forever. It's the life of Jesus in us. The fullness of his life coursing through every part of our life. And that is your promise. And that promise begins now. We hold on to it now, and we even experience it in part now, not fully. But there's a foretaste of those promises which we are able to inhabit in this moment. It's not in the far by and by. We live in it now, and we proclaim it to others because we can trust God. This is a huge contrast to the enemy and to the world which lies to us. And it's also a big contrast to the Cretans. The people that Titus is sent to minister to are called Cretans. Ever heard like somebody call somebody a Cretan? Well, that Cretan. They were known as liars. That was their moniker. Come to Crete, where we lie. It's kind of like we call Las Vegas Sin City. Believe them when they tell you. That's who they wore. That was their label. But our label is truth. And our label is God's chosen. And we trust in that because he does not lie. Our salvation is not an afterthought by him. He planned it with great care from the beginning before he even knit you together in his womb. So we are safe, we are secure, and we are hopeful. We are in season. Paul says that at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me. God placed his eternal plan of salvation in the hands of the early church. It was that time that was appointed. And that is being carried on through Titus, through those that Titus would bring to Christ, through the generations that come. And when you receive that baton, it's your time. We were made for such a time as this. You were born in this generation for a reason. You were born in this location for a reason. You are in the job you have, in the neighborhood you have, in the family you have, for a reason. It's the season. It's the time. And the time is now. And we are all tasked to work while the sun is shining. 
The darkness will come. But the light is shining now. It's the season for fruit, for evangelism, for promise, and for redemption. And for us to do the things God has called us to do. I'm going to skip this one. We'll talk more about that later. He says, so he's, he's gone through the things he says about himself, and now he says to Titus, my true son, we're family. Paul uses the same expression to Timothy and to Titus because he was their spiritual father. He probably led them both to faith. But we are a family. We are in one body. We have one head. We have one father. We are brothers and sisters. We are more connected than you are to any physical child that you may have that's not in the body of Christ. We are called to walk as a family, shoulder to shoulder. Our mission is not alone. We're part of a people. We're part of a community. There is no Christianity without the community of the family of faith. We need one another. We need to encourage one another. We need to forgive one another. We need to exhort one another. We need to love one another. We think we love our family, but we love our human family imperfectly. But Jesus said, this is how they will know you are my disciples, that you love one another. And loving one another means bearing burdens. It means that even if you fail me, I'm still there for you. There's not one person in this church that I will ever reject for anything that you do because I've made a covenant with you. That covenant is the covenant God made with all of us. Even if you're unfaithful, God says to us, I will be faithful. And he's calling us to be faithful with one another. Even if there are people in this body, people in the church, people in the global church that rub you the wrong way, that are like a burr and you're behind, God will give you the strength through the Holy Spirit to love them and walk with them as brothers and sisters. We are better to say we are better together. I don't know if that was a slogan, a political slogan, but the truth is we don't go on mission alone. We don't preach the gospel alone. We're not a witness alone. We are there walking with our brothers and sisters to show the world a community that's changed and different. We can't do that on our own. We're joined together by one faith. He says to Titus, my true son, Notice the word true. You're my true brother, my true sister. Forget genetics and bloodline and family history. When the blood of Jesus flows through your veins and you've been changed, then we are truly brothers and sisters. But what are we truly connected by? A common faith. There is one faith given for all. If it's new, it is not true. You will hear all kinds of winds of doctrine. And Paul warns us, he says, even if an angel from heaven preaches a different gospel, reject it. That gospel was laid down. Paul preached it. There is nothing added or changed. We don't compromise. There is one faith, there is one truth, there is one message, and that's what we proclaim. We don't compromise because it is only one and it's something we share together. We don't break it up. We don't divide it. We don't water it down. We don't change it for our convenience. And finally, we are receivers of grace and peace. He says, to my true son Titus in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ. 
Because we are family, we're loved by God, and flowing from that love are three promises that we walk with. That's grace, mercy, and peace. And as you know, grace is unmerited favor. It's God's blessing in spite of ourselves. That's what gets us into the family. That's how we became born again. That's how we became one with each other. And then there's mercy, unlimited compassion. Just come to me, and I will forgive you. That's what keeps us in the family. Part of that sanctification is coming to our knees, coming to the altar, going to our brother, confessing our sins, going to our father and say, I messed up again, and you will receive mercy. He will never withhold that mercy. And that's what keeps us in the family, keeps us growing, so we don't get discouraged or off on our own. And then there's peace. How many of you just want peace? Peace in your hearts, the peace of God. Jesus said, my peace I give you. It's not like the world's peace. And it is unsurpassing wholeness. And this is what lets us enjoy being part of the family. Whether you get a bad medical report, whether you're struggling in your marriage, whether there's nothing in the bank account, you can rest in peace. You can cast your cares. And a peace that surpasses what? All understanding. You don't have to get it. You can say, God, I don't know why I feel peaceful. There ain't no reason on this list that I should feel peaceful. But it's beyond my understanding, and thank you that it's resting on me. It's resting in me. And guess what? That peace could overflow wherever you go. So who are we? In just these few verses, Paul says who he is. He says who Titus is. And he's sending a message to all of us of who we are. We are servants of God. We are sent by God. We are chosen by God. We are righteous in God. We are secure in God's promises. We are empowered right now for this season to do every work he's called us to do. We are fully capable, able through him to do what he's called us to do right now. We are in God's family. We are a witness of one faith without compromise. And wherever we go, we are a receiver of grace. We are a receiver of mercy, and we can bask and bathe in God's peace. So I want us to leave here today with two things on our hearts. One, a reverence for the word of God that tells us that we are those things and a whole lot more. And I'd like us all this week to sit with God and say, God, I know you say all this about me. I know this is what I'm called to be, but I don't feel like I measure up. I feel like I've still got some dragon scales that have to come off, and I can't take them off. I'm going to open my arms and expose my body, my heart, my soul, my very life to you to rip off all that doesn't please you and let me emerge in my identity and who you've called me to be. Let me be a shining trophy of your grace that looks like Jesus. I'd like to call the praise team up here today, and I just want to pray for just a moment as we continue in this series, that we take it seriously. And that it's just the beginning of a journey. We're just studying one little book. We've got 66 books of God's riches. It's such a privilege. So many people in the world don't even have access to a Bible, and we do. Let's have it not collect dust. Let's have it not be something we, we rush through to check something off our list. But let's enter in to the life of Christ. Let's put our hand into his side and say, my Lord and my God.